What are the ethical and practical challenges of working closely with communities to informal work? How does a writer condense hundreds of research and interview hours into a single play? I'm Dino Dimitriadis, your host for what is the third episode of Staging the Nation. Welcome to Staging the Nation. We'd like to acknowledge the Darug people where we record this podcast today, and we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. As we stand in this complicated present, we look back through the contemporary Australian canon and shine a light on some of the writers that have grappled with the big questions of who we are as a nation and the complexity of presenting marginalised and underrepresented experiences. In this third episode in the series, I'm very happy to be speaking with Alana Valentine and deep diving into her practice and her play, Parramatta Girls. The inmates of the girls' training school, Parramatta, had about as hard an upbringing as you can get in Australia but theirs is also one of the great untold stories of making good in tough times. Based on the testimony of dozens of GTS old girls, Parramatta Girls is a joyous and harrowing picture of the experiences of eight inmates and their reunion 40 years later. Interspersed with song and storytelling, the play is a tribute to mischief and humour in the face of hardship and inequality. Parramatta Girls received a 2008 New South Wales Literary Award nomination and a 2008 Helpwin Award nomination for Best New Australian Work. Alana is a multi-award winning playwright and the author of over 30 plays. Her recent works include Barbara and the Camp Dogs, co-written with Ursula Jovich, which won four Helpman Awards and four Green Room Awards. Ladies' Day, produced at Griffin Theatre in 2016, was nominated for the Nick Enright Prize for Drama, the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. Alana is the recipient of two Tasmanian Theatre Awards 2017 for The Tree Widows, which received the Best Writing in a Professional Production Award, as well as the Judges Award for Creative Integration of Community, Culture and Heritage. Her plays Parramatta Girls and Shafana and Ansarina are both currently on the New South Wales school syllabus in drama and English respectively. Other recent plays include The Sugar House, Made to Measure, Letters to Lindy, and Ear to the Edge of Time, which won the Fifth Stage International Playwriting Award. Welcome, Alana Valentine. <laughs> Thank you, Dino. It's so lovely to be sitting here in Parramatta on the Riverside stage as we talk about Parramatta Girls. To begin at the beginning, I'm always interested in that first moment a playwright decides to write a play. What was that moment for you with Parramatta Girls? Yes, so I'll just begin by also um, acknowledging the traditional owners and, and um, thanking them for their custodianship of this beautiful land that we're on. Um, and the answer to your question is that I saw a TV program, State Line, um, which is no longer on the ABC, uh, and it was by Sharon O'Neill, who was the journalist, and she had taken three First Nations women back to the Parramatta Girls' Home. Coral Pombo, Marlene Riley Wilson, and Marjorie Woodruff. And 
Marjorie Woodrow. And I saw that and I thought, wow, that's a really amazing story. It's a place that I didn't know much about. And so I contacted one of the women, Coral Pombo. I, I came to um, Wollongong where she was living and she talked to me for about three hours and at the end of it she said to me, Alana, I'd really like you to tell us, tell this story and I want you to come to a First Nations Women Parramatta Girls reunion down at the Rocks. Amazing. And so I went down there and they are all having a feed and I went round from woman to woman talking about my play, my idea for a play. And I finally met a woman, Marlene Riley Wilson, who I'd seen on the on the TV, and she was she looked at me, she was completely silent. And by then I'd worked with enough First Nations women to know uh, that you've got to let her take control. I, it's not up to me. It's not about me pitching it or talking to her. It was it was her um, moment, and I just let her like look into me. And after a while, she smiled. And she said, yeah, yeah, I'd like you to do this, Alana, but only if you don't take out the tough bits. And I said, Marlene, I think I can promise you mm. that I'll be putting in as many of the tough bits as, as you want to um, privilege me to hear. So the answer to your question is really I waited to be asked mm. to do this story by those First Nations women. Then I went to a big um, reunion at the home in Parramatta and did the same thing, went and spoke to people, was handing out a flyer and waited until women con contacted me if they wanted to be involved. So, you know, I know you're probably going to ask me some things about this, but my practice is very much about, um, about allowing those people to ask for their story to be told by a writer and to then liaise with them about doing that because I think that's really important. Mm. And is that how you're able to... I guess, navigate writing for communities that you might not have lived experience with? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, I call my work close work mm. and what I mean by that is that I work really closely with the community of interest and I act as an outside eye. There are both advantages and there are disadvantages to not being part of the community but um, my work is to privilege their perspective all the way through, yeah. Yeah, great. So you've got the trust of some members of the community. You've been invited into this story. Where do you start? Yeah, I mean, then I, I go back to this the, the first woman because she's my ticket into the community, as it were. She's my trusted um, insider. So I... I recorded Coral's story and then Coral says to me, you might like to speak to Marlene. Um, I describe in my practice this kind of, I, I work like a branches of a tree mm. so that usually everyone at the end of an interview, I will say, hey, who do you think I should speak to? And then they'll tell me the next person. And then there's a point in my investigations where I deliberately try to go outside the kind of um, group and find an alternative perspective from somewhere. Usually by then I've heard about someone that they all don't like or, mm. and then I try mm. and find that yeah. person, yeah. And can you share with us a little bit your process for actually conducting these interviews and conversations? 
Yeah. So, I mean, there's a there's a few things mm. that that that's a whole topic in itself. Yeah. Um, but my process with an interview is to a couple of things. First of all, I let people tell their favourite stories. You know, <laughs> like that everybody's got the the stories where they feel secure and they know what they're going to say. They know they've told it to someone else and it's got a bit of a reaction. So I let them do that for about like half an hour, maybe 20 minutes, half an hour. And then there's a point in the interview where I've been drawing them out and um, asking, you know, empathising with them. And then I kind of, um, I mean, a journalist would know this too. You you sort of pull back and and make it a little bit tougher on them. Um, you don't need to do that, by mm. the way. Yeah, <laughs> thank but, you. Um, um, yeah, I sort of, you know, I, I'm a little bit tougher on them because then they then they sort of push push back, and then um, at some point in the interview, I also. Uh, Talk about other interviews I've done and and let them know, for instance, in this this interview uh, with Parramatta Girls, that they could tell me things that, you know, might shock mm. someone else. They're, they're quite protective in that way. They'll say, like, I would only tell this to another Parramatta girl because it's quite, you know, gruesome. And I would say, well, I've heard that and it's like, oh, okay, she can handle this. Mm. So I would reassure them that some of the things I was going to hear would be okay. And then there's a point at which towards the end that I I kind of wrap it up and turn the tape recorder off or whatever. And often once you're off, as it were, you know, recording, they'll tell you these amazing things. They'll mm. suddenly, and I'll say, do you mind if I put the tape recorder back mm. on? Um, and I'll only do it with their permission. But that's often where I use the material that's on stage. And that's because it's in those moments that they're telling and feeling things that they haven't thought of before. And they're kind of in in the moment, much more in the moment and they're on the horns of the dilemma, if I can put it that mm. way, and that's what makes great drama. Mm. You know, it, that's that's the stories that are y- y- they don't know where they're going next so the audience don't know where they're going mm. next. And, and you know, I mean, my work is not like a journalist. I'm not trying to get them to trip up or say something that they wouldn't want to. I'm trying to get them to come at their experience in a new way. So yeah, I mean that's look that's a very brief mm. overview of it, but it's a it's a it's a very deliberate process into getting getting the best out of someone so that then when they see it on stage later they go that's me. I, I, I know about this. I know what I was talking about. Um, and I, I love that experience. I mm. love drawing someone out. I mean, let's face it, Dino, this is a lovely experience, but most people don't get to speak for an hour about their lives. So they, they love it as an experience, you know, and it's a, a great thing to be able to privilege people's, you know, lives in that way. It's an honour. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I've read you talking about how actually keeping a time pressure on the interview. Keeping it to an hour is actually quite a useful strategy. I mean, every interview is a little bit different, but that you've got to, you know, you you kind of put that slight time pressure on it. Yeah, it's it's just to do with that thing of, like I say, trying to get them to that point mm. where they're where they're in the moment, trying to to get them to thinking of new new perspectives on their experience, having heard my interactions mm. and and, and what I'm digging for. It's it's a very active thing. I mean, I've got to say, I watch great journalists do it. I, I watch, you know, um, 
yarn event and I watch um, Lee Sales and, you know, Kerry O'Brien, they, they're brilliant. And that, you, you watch how they lead someone into a, into a comforting zone and then, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then try to get them. That's, again, like I say, I'm not doing that. I'm not trying to get them to say something they shouldn't or wouldn't, but I am trying to get them to rediscover themselves. Mm. Yeah. So you conduct over 30 interviews with inmates of the girls' training school. Yeah. You also read the Senate inquiry into children in institutional care, which is... Well, uh, no, I went out, I came out here. Yeah. There was an there a, a, a inquiry called Forgotten Australians, which mm. was about um, uh, women, people who were in uh, both state care and private care. And then uh, in 2014, when Riverside stayed, restaged Parramatta Girls, there was the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse. So both of them were, were useful. But when I was writing it, it was called Forgotten Australians, yeah. Yeah. And so lots of testimonies, lots of stories, lots of directions you can go in. Yeah. Why did you decide to collapse the research into eight central characters in the play? Yeah, so uh, we had, when I was working with Belvoir Street, who commissioned the play, uh, I said to them, you know, we need to have some public readings because it's very important to me that the community have a sense of ownership of this. So we had a first public reading and it was pure verbatim, what people would understand as just pure transcripts. Um, And that was because almost every one of those 30 women, I would say to them, why have you not told this story before? And they would say, we were told we wouldn't be believed. We were bad girls and no one would believe us. So it was really important as part of their journey for me to literally just transcribe their words and put them on a public stage, and that's what I did. They were at that reading and there were about 30 voices and all of them said to me, you know, I still recognised my bit but I couldn't quite follow who was each other, you know, who were Mm. the other voices. And that was really good for me because then I could say to them, yes, that's right, see, we need to actually maybe put them together because some voices start to sound really similar Mm. and human beings just start to almost, you know, naturally collapse the stories together. So we did a second public reading uh, and I got their permission to use some of the names and and collapse some of the stories. And I'd also included in that second reading some guard characters and some of the children, like their their own children, because a lot of the women had said to me the effect on their children of being in the home. And Neil Armfield came up to me afterwards and he said, look, I see why you want to include the Mm. guards and the children, but really we just want to hear from the women. And that's when I got the idea to have the actors play the women as their 14-year-old or 15-year-old self and um, also the woman of 50 or Mm. 60. Um, Apart from the fact that we'd see this extraordinary virtuoso acting, you know, of seeing yeah. them play a 14-year-old and then a 60-year-old. It was it was to find a way to just completely privilege their experience. And so we we then um, we then had the the production and the women were all there on the opening night on mm. the stage and they got a standing ovation. But why I'm describing that in such detail is because it was about my commitment to bringing the women along. I didn't go and do the interviews and then 
invite them to opening night. You know, we had the public reading. So they go, oh, I see what you're doing. I see why we need to Mm. do this. I understand what theatre is. I mean, half of them had never been to a theatre, you know. Uh, So it is really important to me that on the opening night when they all stand up, that's an endorsement that Mm. this is an authentic reflection of who they are. Mm. Yeah. And that strategy of reducing it to eight characters, is it, is it also a way for you to protect their anonymity in the work? Yeah, I talk about that a bit in my, my book, Bowerbird, where I talk about my process. People will often say to me, I mean, I'll go to universities and they'll be like, but, you know, you have to use their pure transcript. And I'm like, well, think of it this way. Some of those women, maybe four of those women, mm-hmm. told me about assaults on their own children that they had they had bashed their own kids because that's what they'd learned in Parramatta Girls Home. Now, I as a playwright choose one of those women to wear that publicly, right, because it's the best way she describes it or whatever. I can't stand up on the stage and say, "Uh, there were lots of different women. Mm -hmm. You know, one of those women has to then sort of say that that's and, she, and I just, I feel like that's not fair. Mm. It's not fair for her to have to be the one who said that. Um, what I could do by showing that these were collapsed stories, stories, you know, where the character had the name but everyone knew that they were more than one person, was sort of protect the women. Mm. Um, and it actually made them able to speak to me about some of those really tough things, Um and feel safe on the opening night because it's like, well, you know, they're composite characters so no one's going to say, did you do that to your kid? Yeah. You know, it, it is it is really interesting when people get all, mm, the word I would say is righteous about verbatim and how it should be pure <laughs> yeah. and all that. These are people standing on a stage. There's artifice everywhere. Mm. So, you know, I think that for me the ability to dig down to those dark, deep nasty, ugly secrets mm. is, is, is my job. Um, but if I can protect the women as well, that's also part of it, yeah. You mentioned this characterisation where they play their older self and also their, you know, their younger self at the time. And, yeah. and I think it's really interesting and I'd love to talk a little bit about the structure of the play. So you give us a clue quite early on where you say the play is set in 2003 and the remembered past. Yeah. Why did you decide to structure the play as this, what I would describe as a continuous dance between the past and the present. Yeah. So a a couple of reasons. The first is the premise of the play really is that the place itself creates and evokes and holds memories. Mm. Um, And that's why retaining places like the Parramatta Girls' Home is important because those women didn't really start to heal until they could actually go back to the the home and confront what really happened to them. Sometimes they didn't even remember what really happened to them until they got there. So the whole play is premised on that idea that it is the actual sight of something which provokes memory. Um, so that's that's one reason. the The other reason is is just because it's it, you know it's a beautiful thing to see these mm. women. Um, struggle with what their memory has done to that. And I also think that's something that makes it bigger than the Parramatta Girls' Home. We all do that. We 
we do that as individuals and man do we do that as a nation mm. you know we 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 repress things we distort them we change them and so it was really important right in the beginning of the play there's two women who have a fight mm. about whether there was ever a dungeon there so um you know that was again saying to the audience this is not oral history this is not um you know a little documentary on netflix this is um, a play and it is about human beings. Mm. And I'm more interested, of course I'm interested in the history of the Parramatta Girls' Home. I'm more interested in the effect on those women and how they lived with it or didn't live with it. You know, and distorting memory doesn't make it invalid either. You mm -hmm. know, that's the other thing. That woman kind of attacks the other one saying, oh, you know, you, if you weren't there, then you didn't know. All through my interview process, there would be women who would say to me, there were no Aboriginal women in Parramatta Girls' Home. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, were you there for the entire time from like 1947 to 1974? No, you don't know this. Like there's this kind of idea that a single person speaks with authority about mm -hmm. something. So I guess cut the legs out from under that right at the beginning of the play. There is no, um, what do you call it, you know, classified truth. There is no version of truth. All these women have different kinds of truths. Mm. Yeah. It's one of the things that I think is really masterful about the play is there's this uniting, I guess, place and this time period, but it's so much about contested history as well within yeah. that. And having this device of the children and the adult, uh, it really makes you think about what, we lose as children, but yeah. also the trajectory of the trauma from a child and what that can do. Yeah, well, what they lost was was everything. I mean, so much, so much. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it, they mm. were just treated like rubbish, you know, and they they lost so much. Um, not not being loved, not being respected, so many things those women and and it didn't end the day they got out of the home. You know, there's another scene in the play where where you know the woman um, puts put where the women are about to get on the Captain Cook cruise. You know, and they they they're told go to the back of the line and wait, and it's just to get some people on first, but they refuse to get on the boat. And it's because they've been told, go to the back of the line, go to the end of the queue, you know, all their lives. On a Captain Cook cruise. I know, the irony yeah. was, was <laughs> yeah. it's just too too delicious. But it's also just, yeah, it, it tore a little hole in my soul what they just didn't get as children. They got, they got, they got nothing of what they deserve. And, and then, you know, then there's the wonderful, the end of the play where that woman says she was the loveliest mother. Um, and me, a Parramatta girl. So, you know, I, I say they got nothing, but they found a way to love each other. Mm. Um, that was quite palpable in some of the interviews. Um, love and respect each other and and find love after they left. So they, they did resurrect themselves. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And you, you really also, in terms of not just being an oral historian but being a playwright, you, you weave what theatre can do into the play. There's, there's lots of song. <laughs> there's lots of shifting between time and place. You will have now seen a number of productions of Parramatta Girls. <laughs> what, are, what have you observed as the challenge of the, of the actors in having to, to navigate the world of the play? 
Oh, look, I have got one great story. Um, it's because it was the second preview and docs had decided that one of the ways they were going to sort of, um, which is the Department mm. of Community Services, was, were going to ameliorate their guilt or whatever, was to, to fund a whole lot of women to come and see the play. So there were 70 Parramatta girls in the audience and they sat as a block and, you know, <laughs> probably they hadn't seen each other for 30 years. So it was like this... I don't know, was like a, a flame to a, 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 a tinderbox. They, they, they were calling out to the actors all the way through it. But then there was this wonderful moment. Leah Purcell was playing this character, Marlene, and she has to take the stew to the girls who are in isolation. Now, isolation was this, this abominable brutality that they used to visit on these little you know, 13 to 17-year-old girls locked in a, a, a cell for days at a time with no contact, no light, uh, horrible. Um, anyway, so she was she was having to take the stew to them and she, she runs past the gate and the garbage men have left the gate to the Parramatta mm. Girls' home open. So she runs back to get her friend Kerry and Kerry sees that the gate's open and says, come on, let's go. But Marlene can't can't go. She's she's carrying the institutionalisation inside her body. And what I was trying to do was dramatise that it's, it's not about just the gate being open, it's about being brutalised to the point where you can't, you can't go yourself. I mean, and, and that, again, that crosses so many people's experience. You know, oppression doesn't end the day they say gay and lesbian people can get married. You know, mm. we, we, we carry what it w- was part of our lives for a long time. Anyway, but on this day, on this day, the women started yelling at, at <laughs> Leah, go, you go, girl. Like they were having none of that. They were having none of this, the dramatists saying, oh, you know, she's institutionalised. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, get out, get out, you know. And they were wanting her to enact that need, that desire that they had carried for 30 years. So Leah is like standing there thinking, yeah. what the fuck, you know, like yeah, do, totally, I, do totally. I do what they want? Do I? Yeah. She knows the playwright's there and it's like you stay there, girl, because that's my – so, yeah. you know, that that was one thing. But, um, you know, look, it's it's been amazing watching different actors carry, carry these stories. Actors are the most – generous, beautiful people mm. who say, let me use my body, my spirit to tell your story. And they carry it so responsibly, you know. So they almost always have met some of the Parramatta girls because they, you know, they come to the productions mm. and they love seeing the actors. But, I mean, it really is a question for the actors that, mm. that you know, what has been the actual dilemmas. I think mm. uh, I never show them any of the real person's voice or image or anything like that because, you know, I feel like it's their interpretation of the character. But um, I think I think that every great actor has a great child performance in them. So this play does privilege that to the stage and I've seen some amazing performances, yeah. Mm. You also notice reading the play closely and I encourage everyone listening to, to get a hold of the play, how you dramatise space in order to allow for the shifts between the past and the present. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, again, because the premise of the play is about, you know, the space itself Mm. evoking those kinds of reactions, um, I think that 
the difference between how an adult deals with a space and a child deals with the space. So sometimes we like there is a scene where we see a, the twelve-year-old who has just been sexually assaulted and and sort of cowering, and you know we see the adult woman sort of being both of them. There's a scene in the play where they like they're self-harming, mm-hmm. and um, it's it's uh, it's almost. Funny. It's like it, it, I say that because the women talk to me about it like mm. that. It was almost like a way of of um, of making a connection with each other. But there's there's also a scene where one of the women, and this was really true in my research, I met a woman who told me about a relationship she'd had with one of the guards, and then I went and did another interview with a woman who said to me oh, there was this girl there and we all hated her. She was in a relationship with one of the guards. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the same person. (laughs) They have never resolved this. And so I wrote this scene where because this woman said to me, oh, it wasn't my fault. I I asked for it. I brought it on. I I wanted that because I knew that would advantage me. And I was trying to say, yeah, but you were the child, you know, like, but, you know, she had, that's how she had rationalised it all those years. And so um, I had these characters meet and hate each other at the reunion. And then later, um, Gail says to Judy, but, you know, you were the child. And so she not only forgives her, she helps her to realise that what was done to her was wrong. So they're not best friends, Mm. but they they find the connection. Now, on the opening night, mm. both of those women came wow. and and they did actually speak to They threw their arms around each other, burst into tears, mm. and then later each of them told me how I should rewrite their character yeah, of to course, make it. Of course, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it was it, it was the real-life thing of, of, of this affects – these are real people's lives. Mm. Um, the responsibility of that is is estimable, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's a moment that's dealt with so beautifully toward the end of the play. You get a sense of spaces that one might not have known that the other was was in. Yeah. You get a sense that m- multiple things are happening in the facility at multiple times. You also get a sense in the play so beautifully about the actual physical inability to enter a space because of the association of an emotional trauma with that space. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's definitely. And the directors who've worked on that have negotiated that in particular ways. I mean, that scene I talked about where they talk about the abuse, um, Wesley put a whole lot of chairs um, in the space, like setting Mm. up for a little kind of reunion meeting. But it meant that the women had to try and negotiate around these metal chairs, which made this scrape and he made the space itself almost uh, hostile, you Mm. know. So, yeah, look, um, the play also ricochets between sort of these fantasy moments, you know, like the Dr Fingers moment and both of the the directors of the plays I've seen um, have negotiated that really well, like using often things that are in the realistic scenes, like, you know, wrapping a sheet around Dr Fingers and finding things that are in the space Mm. so it's not like you go off and take it out of a reality. Mm. They sort of do what children do where you, you know, where you will use a sheet or use rubber gloves or whatever Mm. to actually create the the space, yeah. Mm. And for those who might have not read the play, do you want to tell us a little bit about what Dr Fingers is? 
Oh, well, yeah. I mean, when the women... So these women, 14 to 17, were put into this institution, the Parramatta Girls' Home, they were often charged with neglect. So if they're, for some reason, their parents had neglected them through alcoholism mm. or some other form of abuse, the child would be charged with neglect, which is a which is a great metaphor, apart from the fact that it's horrific, for what happens to a lot of people in our society, isn't it? You know, you... If you are different or in some way, you, you, that's your liability, you know. So yeah. I, I always used to think that was amazing that they were charged with neglect. Or it would be that if they'd been involved with some sort of crime, if they'd run away from home, um, a- anything like that, if they were pregnant, you know, there are multiple reasons why they could go into the home. The, the terms were six months and nine months and I was told that was because that's the length of a pregnancy. Uh, they would be put into the home and they would go through this initial... First, they, the first thing that would happen once they got out of the car was that they'd go to see the doctor and they all called this doctor, Dr Fingers, um, and he would insert his fingers into their vagina um, to see if they were a virgin or not. And so some of the girls who obviously were... Well, this is this is one doctor who a lot of the women I spoke to talked about. There are clearly many doctors. I don't know if they all did that. But um, I learned that, you know, how many fingers had been inserted and what the experience of that was, was very important to be um, kind of sensitive to. Like it wasn't just the abuse, it was it was the particularities of the abuse. And they would often talk about that abuse very clinically, very detached, very like, whereas in other times in the interview, they'd cry um, with Dr. Fingers, they always told it in a in a very a very clinical way. Yeah, mm. um, so uh, that's a horrific moment in the play play where they sort of reenact the mm. that um, initial kind of processing. Yeah, mm. there's something. St- I don't know, strangely is the right word, but but strangely empowering though by seeing the eight actors do that and not oh, having yeah. other characters, oh, you know, part of that reenactment. Absolutely. And it reinforces that idea of that that was done to children mm. because children can make the most horrific games out of, you know what I mean? Mm. Like children do make games out of shooting people and yeah. all that. I mean, obviously this is worse than most children have the right to be treated, obviously. It's not anything they should ever know anything about, you know. But, um, yeah, it, 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 it's a horrific name that they gave him. Mm. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your work, your body of work. Uh, sometimes it's described as a verbatim practice or verbatim theatre. Uh, with the exception of Run, Rabbit, Run, which we can come back to, you've kind of responded to that often and gone, well, it's more a massaged verbatim rather than verbatim. And as you said before, you prefer the term close work writing or close work theatre. I'd love to unpack a little bit more um, why you prefer that term and and how it actually describes in detail your process. Yeah, so verbatim to me is a description of what you do with the material once you've got it, if Mm. I can put it that way. It it has come to be known as a, a kind of a process where you work with you make art, you make theatrical art out of real life stories and uh, you usually use 
verbatim, that is word for word, transcripts. So for me, that description privileges the um, the delivery of the words that you find. Whereas my term close work means that I work closely with the community. I do more research than you would normally mm. um, expect. And I, importantly, that third tent pole is that I keep the community involved. Um, that's absolutely essential to my process and not essential, essential necessarily to many people's verbatim process. I also just felt that, you know, verbatim with this, with this wonderful impulse in contemporary theatre to try and say theatre can be about us right now. It can be about what happened just down the road here. It was a kind of a way to claim relevancy. Uh, and young, I always find young adults particularly love verbatim because it's really, they can understand it. It's something they can kind of believe believe is authentic. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like close work is is a better mm. version for me because I'm working with found materials. Often I actually correlate myself more with like a, an artist, a visual artist who works out of, you know, found materials like Rosalie Gascoigne makes mm. signs, you yeah. know, cuts yeah. them all up and puts <laughs> them in her way. But that it's still my work, how I arrange it. So, but I think you could be a, like a close work architect or you could be a close work novelist or, mm. you know what I mean? If you actually privilege the version of the community that they want to see, at the same time in my book, I do talk about the fact that at some point you'll want to confront that community safely and responsibly with some of the, the dark stuff about mm. it, that you're not there to proselytise or, or simply Mm, you know, give the best mm. version of the community. You're there to, to give them something that's better than that, which is an insight into the dimensionality mm. of themselves. And that includes their flaws, you know. Mm. I mentioned before Run Rabbit Run because similar to how you describe with Parramatta Girls, giving the opportunity to the community to actually hear the words. Yeah. There was a strategic decision in actually creating that as a verbatim work. Yeah, and I, I talk about that again in, in Bowerbird because I was told that sports fans were, you know, a little mm. bit stupid, a little bit crazy, not very articulate, didn't know what they were doing. You know, there was a big rally, 80,000 people in the street. Oh, that's because they're all just sports mad. And I thought, like, you know, most writers will do, what if we go behind that? What if we push that aside and go, well, maybe they're not that stupid. Mm. Maybe they're really articulate. My background is growing up in a working class suburb in um, Cogra and Bexley, and I was a crazy South supporter. And my experience of working class football fans was that they were lucid, articulate, highly political. <laughs> um, you know, they all had a theory about the world, yeah. how the revolution was going to come. I I knew all these amazingly sort of, um, yeah, well-spoken people. And I knew that if I put them in without saying it was verbatim, middle-class people would say to me, oh, Lenny, you've, you've You've, you know, you've yeah. made them speak extremely well. Mm. Um, you've, you've given them very interesting thoughts. So there was a political reason why I had to make it absolutely verbatim. Uh, in the Parramatta Girls one, 
the intention was to honour the authenticity uh, of a story that hadn't been told for 30 years and to collapse it into eight characters who represented those different strands of it with the trust of the women was as in, you know was more important I did, we didn't need to we needed to know that their stories were true which is the compact I had with the audience mm. not that exactly what they said was exactly mm. how they said it yeah mm. And also the, uh, there's one more thing I'll just add that the Paramatic Girls are incredibly funny, incredibly funny women, dark, dark, you know, gallows humour. And sometimes that doesn't always translate what's funny, you know, between us talking might not work on stage and the dramatists in the audience will know that, that there's a there's a patah, there's a ba-boom, mm. there's a rhythm with, mm. with comedy and that's what a playwright does. So I could make those women funnier as they were in real life by massaging their words into a playwright voice, mm. yeah. The other thing I love about what you say in your book about close work is how it doesn't just, in your opinion, apply to playwrights. Yeah, yeah. It applies to directors, to actors, to people in, in other areas of practice as Absolutely, well. Absolutely, yeah, because it's about respect, isn't it? Mm. It's about respect. It's about knowing that who cares what I have to say about it. Mm. it what's important is to translate that amazing spirit that, you, that you're that you pulling for when you do the interview or you meet these people or you're even talking about your own life and put that on stage in an authentic way. That's great work, mm. you know. That's the work of the artist. I mean, that's what artists do for for this society. They they say, "Let me absorb all your horrors and all your pain and maybe all your joy and hope as well, and find a way to crush it into mm. ninety minutes that you can take." You know, like a a, a kind of a, a hope pill. Mm. You know, it's it's amazing and hard work. And I do. I also talk in the book about the cost to the artist of doing that. That that, you know, that there is a, a need to, you know, protect yourself. Uh, uh, when I worked with adult survivors of child sexual abuse, it, they are very aware of it. They call it transmitted trauma. Yeah. Mm. And there was, you know, when I when I did the Belvoir launch, I, I it was quite good fun, you know, as they are, and then I stood up and sort of talked about there was this whole big hole in my soul from telling this abominable story and hearing 30 women mm. talk with pain about it, you know, but it's, it's, it's great as well. I, 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 talk, I talk a lot about learning from the community how to handle that as well. You know, when I did my play about Lindy Chamberlain Creighton and, and I, I just had to confront this, the horror of what she went through, I learned from her how to deal with that mm. the way she did, which is, mm. which is to, yeah, to often the same as these Parramatta girls, um, to make a kind of a very black joke mm. about it and also to not be ashamed to cry with each other and, and deal with it like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's what close work's about as well. I think that you always think that it's just something you do for them, but they do it. To be close to them teaches you how to deal with this stuff, mm. you know, the, this material. And I think that Writers, directors, actors, all sorts of artists can benefit from it. Um, you know, excitingly, there's lots of artists coming from particular communities who can who, who do that. You know, they wear both hats, they're community mm. members and, and artists as well, and they know that, mm. that, that, that that closeness helps you. Mm. And, and also not just sort of 
stopping the interview and, and it ends there, you <laughs> no, know. I no. think, you know, what, what are some of the measures you put in place to try and protect? I mean, there's obviously measures in the work like fictionalising the characters and that, but what are some of those sort of practical life measures you put in place for your subjects? Yeah, I talk, I talk about... I talk about people say to me, how do you get people to trust you? You know, mm. and I say, be trustworthy. Like it's really that simple and that hard. If you say you're going to text someone afterwards, text them. Mm. You know, don't become their mother. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, if you say you're going to text them, text them. Say, say if they're okay. Make it, make it okay that, you know, ask them. I mean, like I've talked to you about that tree of mm. when I was doing Parramatta Girls, I didn't ever really interview anyone much who was outside of the network of Parramatta Girls because sometimes these people, you know, they say something that they haven't talked about for 30 years. I'm not a therapist. I don't know what's going to happen to them. So I need to know that they've got someone to call if they, you know, suddenly the night horrors come on them, you know, because they could say in the interview, oh, I'm fine. But, you know, we all know what it's like to, you know, turn the light off and suddenly the, the voices begin. Um, you know, it's important to me that that I say something through the interview of um, have you, you know, have you got someone you can call about that? I also often, I talk in my book about, I'll often say to people, do you need to stop for a minute? Do you need to have some water? And it's not actually even about needing to stop or have water. It's about constantly saying to them, you're in control of this, you know? And so you do things, you've got to make it not about you. You've got to so much make it not about you. And there's only certain people who who can do that, if mm. I can put it that way, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So the book we've been talking about is Bowerbird, <laughs> The Art of Making Theatre Drawn from Life, and I've read it from cover to cover. Oh. I strongly suggest people get a copy of it, as well as giving a beautiful overview of your of your practice and work. I think it's incredibly generous and I actually think it's a love letter to theatre and to having a career in the theatre. You say on page 67 of the book, (laughs) um, the act of seeing oneself on stage in all its unpleasant truth is a human right and not simply a middle-class one. Close work theatre does uh, for unfamiliar, marginalised voices and communities what the mainstream theatre does for the middle-class. Our theatre should not be another way to strip the poor both financially and culturally. I was so incredibly moved when I read that that section of the book. I'd love to ask you what's your hope for the future of Australian theatre? Just a little question. A little Dino. question, yeah. <laughs> Look, yeah, I think that I think that too often theatre is about reassuring and mm, dumbing down that sort of um, community rage mm. and anger. And I think that it's less. I think it's changed in the last sort of five, ten years, that there's more and greater diversity of voices in there. I think, you know, the future of Australian theatre is extremely exciting and you'll get from my book I'm very excited about what the new generation of Mm. people can tell me I will often because I've got plays on the HSC syllabus I'll go into schools and say to those young adults 
you have stories to tell me that I've got no idea what they're about, but you need to tell me because I need to understand what your perspective on the world is. Not just for you, for me too, because otherwise I'm taken by surprise um, by things that happen. And also maybe you can help me understand what the world mm. is and, and how my place in it. So I, I, have a, I have lots of hope. I mean, I think that... I think that who gets to tell history and who gets to to, to um, version mm. what happened in this country is deeply political. And if you're not up for that, I'm not sure mm. you're a writer. You know, it, it it's contested. Everything is contested uh, in our world and we have to fight to get our voices heard if they are, they're more marginal. Um, I think that theatre is going to have to make space for new audiences. I think we're going to have to get new audiences in. I think I, I gave a lecture that people can find online at Belvoir Street, um, the Philip Parsons lecture, and it's about um, my love of audiences and getting them in. I'd like to see more diversity in the audience as mm. well as in the um, on stage, I think that young audiences are going to have to be a bigger part of our future. Um, I think that because, uh, yeah, I, there's there's so many reasons. Mm. I just think that 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 the thing that theatre does is get communities into a room, and for ninety minutes, nobody can scream at each other. <laughs> Or, you know what I mean, they have to yeah. watch these yeah. differing perspectives on stage. And I think that theatre will start to make space for that mm. in a world where actually that's harder and harder to do, you know. So I think that theatre has a the job of what it's always done, you know, entertain us, mm. inform us, challenge us. I don't, I don't think it's actually going to be that different. It's just going to be a different generation of artists who'll do it. Mm. How have you kept the faith all these years to keep writing? <laughs> oh, because of that, because because I there's nothing so exciting as being in a room with people who are laughing and then in my work always crying. Yeah. <laughs> I love that bit. But then I went to London and I saw London Road, which is a verbatim musical, and there was this moment where one of the characters talked about, um, oh, you know, it's about, if people don't know, it's about um, the serial killing of, of, of a whole lot of sex workers on London Road. And there's a member of the community who says, oh, if I could, I'd thank that serial killer because he, you know, he, he did us a favour by getting the sex mm. workers off the road. And literally the entire audience just went, oh, like that. And so, of course, Dino, ever after that, I was yeah. like, Crying, laughing, yeah. nah, I want... You want a gasp <gasps> moment, gasp. a collective I want, gasp I want a, I want a collective gasp, you know. <laughs> but it's like, look, I just, I love, I love getting people into a space and I, I love the fact that we are not individuals in that space. We, mm. we are reacting as individuals, of course, but we're also hearing and listening to what other people are doing, mm. what other people are finding moving, what silences them. You know, I love... I love taking off my Alana-ness mm. and going into a group, yeah, mentality, which we know has done so much bad. Like, I mean, obviously, like the Lindy mm. Chamberlain was a great example of that mob m mob rule. 
But, you know, also for me, gifting community into these middle-class audiences, you know, like people would come up to me after Run Rabbit Run crying, you know, the Belvoir subscribers saying, you know, I hate football but I loved your play, you know, like, mm. and I like that. As the same with when the Parramatta Girls play was on, people would, um, would well, there was one woman who said at interval to one of the Belvoir staff, can you ask those women to be quiet because they're, they're spoiling the play and, and, Wow. It, it was mm. they are the story that, that that's what you go for yeah. you know we're here because of them we're here because of them they're the mothers and sisters and you know nieces and nep- and and you know all of that of Australia so I, I don't know Dino I love I love audiences I love being in a theater I love the live experience of watching an actor transform mm. in front of my my face and I find communities have something to say. There's stories that need to be told um, and they keep asking me to tell them. Mm. <laughs> so. you, you, you talk as well in your book about um, the women in your life, your mother, your grandmother. Yeah. You write this play with eight women. What did writing Parramatta Girls teach you about yourself? Look, my mother, yeah, my mother's been dead now for nearly 30 years um, and my grandmother for a little bit longer. Um, they died before I got to ask them. You'd think for a, for a playwright who's like the, you know, the great historian, before I got a chance to ask them all those questions that I would now mm. like forensically ask them. I wanted to spend time with some tough old birds, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Because that's what I missed um, in in the deaths of of, of my my family. Uh, my I don't ha- I, I have had one living relative, my uncle, who died Christmas last year. So I have a very little biolog- biological family. I have a, a brother, and and it just it just taught me that you can make your own family. You can make your own community. Um, these Parramatta girls—they are loyal to a fault. Mm-hmm. I learnt a lot. Of, I've learnt a lot about loyalty from First Nations people. They have a passion and a commitment to loyalty that goes beyond anything I have ever known. And uh, yeah, I, I learnt—I learnt that it's okay to ha- go through horrific things and then just get over them. You know, mm-hmm. like not not hang on to them. I think that's also something that's important. Um, oh, just so many things. I, I still, you know, there's lots of activism around the Parramatta Girls Home. Bonnie Jurek um, and the Para Girls Group are trying to sort of save it and it has been saved. It's still there in Parramatta for people to go and have a look at. Um, I go and see them, go to their Christmas parties. You know, I've stayed in touch with them. So mm. I, I've just learnt that, yeah, life can be renewed if you, if you have a community who will help you through that. On that beautiful note, thank you very much, Alana Valentine. Thank you so much, Dino. Thanks for listening to Staging the Nation. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Staging the Nation is a production of Riverside's National Theatre of Parramatta, produced and recorded at Riverside Theatre's Parramatta. Executive Producer, Joanne Key. Producer and Technical Director, Daniel Holdsworth. 
Composition, Mealy Hay. Associate Producer, Kara Woods. Host, Dino Dimitriadis. And this week's guest was Alana Valentine. Thank you to the Australia Council's Resilience Fund and also City of Parramatta, Create New South Wales and Riverside Theatres. And of course, thank you to you all for listening. (laughs) 